welcome to the 24-week lecture series by Dr. Avraham Gileadi, Dreams, Visions, and Near-Death Experiences Compared to the End-Time Prophecy of Isaiah. This is Lecture 21, The Gentiles Go Two Ways. I welcome you all this evening too. It's so good to see you all. And um, gotten to love you and appreciate you over the last few lectures and hope we can continue this journey successfully. A lot of the scriptures that we're, we'll be uh, discussing, even till the very end, often repeat themselves, but that's because they're in different contexts. And also, in that way, you get an overview of the main scriptures that are from Isaiah, for example, and uh, especially the ones that the, the Book of Mormon writers are interested in. And we'll, we'll see that today also. So we start with, um, funny enough, with uh, the dream of Joseph Smith of the barn, which is in actually the teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith by, compiled by Joseph Fielding Smith. So he thought it important enough to include that. It was one of the last dreams that he had in Nauvoo. And in his dream, he was back in Kirtland, Ohio, and thought he would take a walk uh, by myself, he says, and view my old farm. As we know, he had a farm there, and he farmed it himself. And sometimes he found angels that plowed the field in the night when he didn't have time things like that. So in those days, the farm was certainly blessed, which I found growing up with weeds and brambles, altogether bearing evidence of neglect and want of culture. Now, weeds and brambles in the Hebrew prophets like Isaiah, are indicative of the wicked who overrun the, the land of promise, the promised land. And they're likened to brambles that overrun everything in the Day of Judgment. And when the earth is pretty well devastated and these gangs and you know mobs and, and so forth bandits are out there and they are likened to brambles altogether bearing evidence of neglect and want of culture now tie this in with other scriptures that we've read and begin to see that this totally coheres with things like the olive tree bearing all kinds of fruit that none of it's any good etc I went into the barn which I found without floor or doors with the weather boarding off and was altogether in keeping with the farm, that's the land. While I viewed the desolation around me, I was contemplating how it might be recovered from the curse upon it. There came rushing into the barn a company of furious men who commenced to pick a quarrel with me. The leader of the party, so they had a leader, ordered me to leave the barn and farm, stating it was none of mine, that I must give up all hope of ever possessing it. I told them the farm was given me by the church, and although I had not any use of it for some time, back, I had not sold it, and according to righteous principles, it belonged to me or the church. He then grew furious and began to rail upon me and threaten me and said it never did belong to me nor the church. Remember one of our earlier series of lectures, this is very similar to the dream of the king man and the daughter of Zion, the king man who was kind of running the show. And uh, kind of indicating of the collusion between the political and ecclesiastical. He then grew furious and began to rail upon me and threaten me and said it never did belong to me nor the church. I then told him that I didn't think it was worth contending about. I had no desire to live upon it in its present state. And if he thought he had a better right, I would not quarrel with him about it, but leave. But my assurance that I would not trouble him at present did not seem to satisfy him, as he seemed determined to quarrel with me and threaten me with the destruction of my body. So, you know, when you look at the trends of apostasy, it ultimately goes there to murder 
when those who kill you, as Jesus said in Matthew 24, they think they do God a service. And they don't leave you alone. As you know, they, they will just go after you and stay with you until somehow they're satisfied that you're no, not even a threat anymore. The fact that you're alive bothers them. While he was thus engaged, pouring out his bitter words upon me, a rabble rushed in and nearly filled the barn, drew out their knives, and began to quarrel among themselves for the premises, and for a moment forgot me, at which moment, at which time I took the opportunity to walk out of the barn up to my ankles in mud. Now mud, again, is a chaos motif in, in the scriptures. When I was, things are pretty chaotic at that point in time. When I was a little distant from the barn, I heard them screeching and screaming in a very distressed manner, as it appeared they had engaged in a general fight with their knives, and while they were thus engaged, the dream or vision ended. So you can make of this what you will, but um, I came up with a few scriptures that kind of give the same idea uh, as what Joseph Smith describes. Now notice, for example, there's the collective and then there's the individual. The individual is Joseph Smith, the collective is everybody else. And what happened to the collective, what kind of, who they are. And we discussed this before, how the collective goes one way, but it's only individuals among the collective that come out, or that are part of, used to be part of it, perhaps, and come out and get their act together in the end time. For example, Jacob 5. It came to pass that the servants said unto them, Master, this is the final scenario before the bad branches are thrown in the fire and the natural branches are grafted back in, the few natural branches that remain. Is it not the loftiness of the vineyard? Have not the branches thereof overcome the roots, which are good? And because the branches have overcome the roots thereof, behold, they grew faster than the strength of the roots, taking strength unto themselves. Behold, I say, is this not the cause that the trees of thy vineyard have become corrupted? And we see that those men were furious and they were exercising their authority and so forth. And they couldn't let people go. Joseph Smith, the very prophet himself. I, I suppose that if, yeah, I won't go there, but if a prophet of God came today, they would treat him that way too. 2 Nephi 28, 5 through 6, speaking of us in Zion, chapters about people in Zion. They deny the power of God, the Holy One of Israel. They say unto the people, hearken to us, hear ye our precept, for behold, there is no God today, for the Lord and the Redeemer has done his work. What work is it? The great and marvelous work, right? Which is the restoration of the house of Israel by definition, but many believe that it's the restoration of the gospel and the priesthood. For behold, there is no God, has done his work, for he has given his power unto men. Behold, in other words, we don't need God. Behold, hearken ye unto my precept. If they shall say there is a miracle wrought by the hand of the Lord, believe it not. Well, this day he's not a God of miracles, he has done his work. And now we're in charge, kind of thing. This ties in with the many other scriptures as well, um, like the allegories of the vineyard and here and there, and the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's a funny thing that today there are wonderful miracles happening, such as visions and dreams by many people, but they seem to get all kinds of opposition, don't they, from, from where, sources where you'd expect they'd get the most support. Isaiah 32, 6. The godless utter blasphemy, their heart, heart ponders in piety, how to practice hypocrisy and preach perverse things concerning Jehovah, leaving the hungry soul empty, depriving the thirsty soul of drink. More of the same kind of attitude as the people in the barn were expressing. Also, 2 Nephi 28, they wear stiff necks and high heads. Because of pride and wickedness and abominations and whoredoms, they've all gone astray, save it be a few, who are the humble followers of Christ. 
that will be represented by Joseph Smith in the barn. Nevertheless, that they are led, that they are being led, that in many instances they do error because they are taught by the precepts of men. Oh, the wise and the learned and the rich that are puffed up in the pride of their hearts. Now remember that the wise and the rich and the learned and so forth were the ones who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb and they refused, right? They didn't want to come. And so who came in? The poor and the lame and the halt and the ones who were not invited at first that are puffed up in the pride of their hearts and all those who preach false doctrines and all those who commit whoredoms and pervert the right way of the Lord. How can you be learned, wise, and rich and not pervert? In other words, that goes with the territory of false doctrines and whoredoms and perverting the right way of the Lord. When you're all self-sufficient, you know, and you think you know it all, then what, is, what else is there? Whoa, 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 a threefold curse be upon them, unto them, say the Lord God Almighty, for they shall be thrust down to hell. Woe unto them that turn aside the just for a thing of naught, and revile against that which is good, and say that there is no worth, for the day shall come that the Lord God will speedily visit the inhabitants of the earth, and in that day that they are fully ripe, in iniquity they shall perish. We behold, if the inhabitants of the earth shall repent of their wickedness and abominations, they shall not be destroyed, said the Lord of hosts. But behold, that great and abominable church, the horror of all the earth, must tumble to the earth, and great must be the fall thereof. So you can see that all these people become part of that horror. We'll see that in a moment as well. Now the dream of the riverboat by Joseph Smith, because he was living on the Mississippi River, and again, this is one of his last dreams, and he thought it worthy enough to be to write it down. I was standing on a peninsula in the midst of a vast body of water where there appeared to be a large harbor or pier built out for boats to come to. I was surrounded by my friends and while looking at this harbor, I saw a steamboat approaching the harbor. There were bridges on the pier for persons to cross. There came up a wind and drove the steamboat under one of the bridges and upset it. Now you can imagine that you're out on the river and the wind is a chaos motif, and, but it's also kind of a consequence of people's actions, like the great storm that's the last days are likened to, the destructions of the last days are likened to, this storm that rages, it comes up, just like you're not expecting it, like a tornado, and there it is. Now suddenly it's a reality, but before that, who's expecting it? Came out of the blue. And drove the steamboat under one of the bridges and upset it. I ran up to the boat, expecting the persons would all drown, and wishing to do something to assist them, I put my hand against the side of the boat, with one surge, I shoved it under the bridge and righted it up, and then told them to take care of themselves. But it was not long before I saw them starting out into the channel, the main body of the water again. The storms are raging and the water is rough, as it's going to be in the last days, the end time, way more than people expect. I said to my friends that if they do not understand the signs of the times and the spirit of prophecy, they would be apt to be lost. But it was but a few moments after when we saw the waves break over the boat and she soon foundered and went down with all on board. The storm and waters were still very rough. Now Isaiah uses water and storm imagery all through his book to express these very thoughts. If they're not standing on the rock when the storms come and beat against that house, Jesus said, they will, not, they will perish. Yet I told my friends around me that I believed I could stem those waves and that storm and swim in the waters better than the steamboat did. You see now, there's some imagery here about the steamboat is going along, like the old ship Zion, and everybody on board thinks they're really in a good place. But 
actually, they flounder and they all perish, but there are individuals like Joseph Smith who actually end up in the end doing better than the steamboat as a whole, which tells you that because these individuals um, come out of Zion, they ascend to a higher spiritual level where they, where they gain greater powers. And that's the whole purpose. The old boat is simply there to get you started. Um, it's not the end all. At any rate, I was determined to try it, but my friends laughed at me and told me I could not stand it all. So he does have friends around him, but some of them are still unbelievers as well. See that? So, you know, you have, you have friends, and you have friends that right now maybe think along the same lines as you do, but time may come that they won't either. He told me that I could not stand at all, but would be drowned. The waters looked clear and beautiful, though exceedingly rough. And I said I believed I could swim, and I would try it anyhow. They said I would drown. So at least somebody's leading the way, and that's a comforting thing, because when the Lord does a new thing, he usually has somebody you know, dives in first, so to speak, like the penguins down in Antarctica. And then all the others follow. I said I'd, I would have a frolic in the water first, and if I did, and I drove off the raging waves, something like that. I had swum but a short distance when a towering wave overwhelmed me for a time. But I soon found myself on top of it, and soon I met the second wave in the same way, and for a while I struggled hard to live in the midst of the storm and waves. So the going was rough. Remember that if you want to get to the point where he's going to get, you're going to have to go through those waves and be prepared to do so. And that's the test. So you go into the situation with expecting not to be easy. I soon found I gained upon every wave and skimmed the torrent better, kind of like riding the waves in Hawaii. And I soon had power to swim with my head out of the water so the waves did not break over me at all. And I found that I had swum a great distance and looking about, I saw my brother Samuel by my side. So there are others beginning to be others then after that. I asked him how he liked it, and he said, first rate. I, says, I suppose that's the old expression of saying cool. And I thought so too. I was soon unable to swim with my head and shoulders out of water, and I could swim as fast as any steamboat. See? In a little time it became calm, and I could rush through the water and only go into my loins, and soon only went to my knees, and finally I could tread on top of the water, went almost with the speed of an arrow. I said to Samuel, see how swift I can go. I thought it was a great sport and pleasure to travel with such speed, and I awoke. Isn't that a cool dream? <laughs> First rate. <laughs> okay, Isaiah 8. Sanctify Jehovah of hosts, making him your fear, him your awe. And I think we've discussed this because people in the end time are living in fear. And it's about conspiracies and this, that, and the other. And I said to Isaiah, don't, don't worry about that. You don't need to be so, so glued to the news every day and, you know, and wondering what's going to happen to the world next. Making him your fear and him your awe. Don't fear man, he says repeatedly. Don't fear this situation, that your enemies. To you, he'll be a sanctuary. And if you kind of capture that thought that we can abide in Christ at all times and in all places, and he can be our sanctuary. He is our sanctuary right now if we want him. If we abide in him, then he's there, he's in us, and he, we abide in him. So we're, we're a sanctuary ourselves. We're temples of the Holy Ghost, but also temples of Christ, and even of the Father. But to the two houses of Israel, in other words, to everybody else, to the collective, to the whole people of Israel, like the barn, or the farm, or like the riverboat, 
a stumbling block or obstructing rock and a snare catching unawares the inhabitants of Jerusalem or whatever city, whatever people, then are the Lord's covenant people. So it's, it sounds like a pretty lonely journey, doesn't it? It sounds like, you know, to go with Christ, it's just very lonely at times. And then, but like Joseph Smith, he had other friends and others followed him. And he provides leaders that we can follow. Many will stumble into them, that is, the obstructing rock and stumbling blocks. And when they fall, they shall be broken. And when they become ensnared, they shall be taken captive. And that's typically the covenant curse of the promised land being invaded by enemies. And as Spencer sees in Bridge of Glory, that's going to happen here. For Jehovah has said, bind up the testimony, seal along among, among my disciples. So those who truly are his disciples, and the law and testimony, or the testimony, or the gospel, or the fullness of the gospel, or the true points of his doctrine, or all the things that represent the truth of God versus the precepts of men, are going to be confined among his disciples at some point. And it says, I will wait for Jehovah. Everybody's not waiting for Jehovah, but I will. I'm going to wait for him, who hides his face from the rest of us, from the rest of the house of Israel, or Jacob, and expect him. And then like Joseph Smith, um, a man shall become as a shelter from the wind, a refuge from the storm, because he is our sanctuary. When we abide in him, we become a sanctuary to others, our wives and children, or all whom we bring under our, our shadow. Like brooks of water in a desert place, or the shade of a large rock in arid country. 51. Here may you follow as of righteousness, seekers of Jehovah. Now this is not everybody. In Isaiah, it's a select group of people and righteousness is also the servant who personifies righteousness in chapter 41, verse 2. He's called righteousness, as the Lord is called salvation. He personifies salvation. So those who seek the Lord are also those who follow that servant, or vice versa. Look to the rock from which you were cut, to the quarry out of which you were hewn. Look to Abraham, your father, to Sarah who bore you. He was but one when I called him. In other words, he was all alone, like Joseph Smith in the barn or on the river. He was just one, all alone, just him and God. His society hated him, but I blessed him by making him many. And that's the Abrahamic covenant of posterity as numerous as the sands of the sea and the stars of heavens from multitude. Now you'd think that looking at the comparison of these verses, that the rock would be Abraham and Sarah the quarry. But then you do a word link to rock in the book of Isaiah, and who's the rock? Jehovah, yeah. Jehovah is the rock. All right, so we think that with the, with the restoration of the gospel, everything was restored. But that's not true. There's still the restoration of all things. It's a future event that's spoken of as future event in the Doctrine and Covenants. Like the two witnesses who were sent to Jerusalem at the time of the restoration of all things, or the, rest, the restoration of all things. Restoration is principally of the house of Israel. That's also the great and marvelous work. And so the great and marvelous church is still around and going to have an impact all the way to the very end before the, that great and marvelous church is done away on the earth. We start looking at that church in 1 Nephi 13. It came to pass that the angel spake unto me, saying, Look, and I looked and beheld many nations and kingdoms. The angel said to me, What beholdest thou? I said, I behold many nations and kingdoms. And he said to me, These are the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles. And it came to pass that I saw among the nations of the Gentiles the formation 
of a great church. And the angel said to me, Behold the formation of a church which is most abominable above all other churches, which slays the saints of God, and tortures them, and bindeth them down, and yoketh them with a yoke of iron, and bringeth them down into captivity. Well, that's what the guys in the barn wanted to do to Joseph Smith, was it not? They wanted to totally dispossess him, and they were threatening his life in the end. So whenever a people get to that point, then they're actually part of this great and bombable church. It came to pass that I beheld this great and bombable church, and I saw the devil that he was the founder. And I also saw gold and silver and silks and scarlets and fine twined linen and all manner of precious clothing and many harlots. And the angel spake unto me, saying, Behold the gold and silver and silks and scarlets and the fine twined linen and the precious clothing and the harlots. This is so Hebrew in thinking, spelling things out. Are the desires of this great and abominable church. Like the great and marvelous word, it's, the Hebrew actually gives the connotation of greatly marvelous. In this case, greatly abominable, a very, very abominable church. And also, for the praise of the world do they destroy the saints of God and bring them down into captivity. And whenever you see, you know, ecclesiastical powers exercising their authority unrighteously, then you know you're here in this, with this category of people. 1 Nephi 30, 13, 24 through 27. And the angel of the Lord said to me, Thou hast beheld that the book, that's the Bible from which we know, proceedeth forth from the mouth of a Jew, the mouth of a Jew, not necessarily a single Jew. Though if it is a, a single Jew, it could have been Ezra, who had seven scribes and wrote for 40 days and nights all the scriptures that they had lost due to the Babylonian captivity. He was obviously a seer. Probably had a similar position in the records of the scriptures as Moroni did, who, was, who had the keys of the record of Joseph. And when it proceeded forth from the mouth of a Jew, it contained the fullness of the gospel of the Lord. That's the Bible. Of whom the twelve apostles bear record. And they bear record according to the truth which is in the Lamb of God. Wherefore these things go forth from the Jews in purity unto the Gentiles according to the truth which is in God. So when it left the Jews, it was perfect. It was pure. And also they go forth by the hand of the twelve apostles of the Lamb from the Jews unto the Gentiles. After that, thou seest the formation of that great and abominable church, which is most abominable above all other churches. For behold, they have taken away from the gospel of the Lamb many parts which are plain and most precious, and also many covenants of the Lord have they taken away. And the parallel of those two things, as I mentioned before in another lecture, the parallel of those two things identifies the most plain and precious parts as the covenants of the Lord. Then the synonymous parallel. And all this have they done that they might pervert the right ways of the Lord, that they might blind the eyes and harden the hearts of the children of men. And that is what the Great Abominable Church does. Verse 34. It came to pass that the angel of the Lord spake unto me, saying, Behold, said the Lamb of God, after I have visited the remnant of the house of Israel, and this remnant of whom I speak is the seed of thy father, now, remember, the remnant of the house of Israel are those who survive into the end time. We see that also because many natural lineages of the house of Israel have suffered, you know, genocides, the Jewish genocide during World War II, and the genocide of the Native Americans even long after Joseph Smith, and the genocide of the Armenians and many of Eastern European peoples that claim lineage of the house of Israel. Wherefore, the seed of his father, Lehi, of course, is specifically related to the situation here. Wherefore, I have visited him in judgment, smitten by the hand of the Gentiles, 
and after the Gentiles who stumble exceedingly because of the most plain and precious parts of the gospel of Lamb, which have been kept by that abominable church, which is the mother of harlots, said the Lamb. Well, the mother of harlots is also the, the harlot Babylon in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah. This is given a different imagery or name here because in Nephi's time, Babylon was still a political power. So we had to resort to other imagery. Said the Lamb, I will be merciful unto the Gentiles in that day, insomuch I will bring forth unto them in my own power, the word power is the key word here, much of my gospel which shall be plain and precious. And we have received that through the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants, and the Pearl of Great Price, through the Prophet Joseph Smith. Then for First Nephi 14, we're just progressing through these, getting glimpses of what the angel was showing Nephi. He said to me, Behold, there are saved two churches only. The one is the church of the Lamb of God, and the other is the church of the devil. Wherefore, whoso belongeth not to the church of the Lamb of God belongeth to that great church, which is the mother of abominations. And she's the whore of all the earth. Remember, among Nephite times, there were those who belonged to the church of God. There were those who professed to belong to the church of God, who thought they were, but they were not. And so there you have a parallel to this situation here. You're either one or the other at any time, which is the mother of abomination, the whore of all the earth. And it came to pass that I looked and behold the whore of all the earth, and she sat upon many waters, which represents peoples or nations. Just like in the book of Revelation, the harlot Babylon sits upon many waters. And she had dominion over all the earth, belonging among all nations, kindreds, tongue, and people. In other words, the majority. Why is the way, you know, where people go who, who don't go on the straight path? in uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Okay, so back on this again. Because it's speaking of the saints of God as belonging to the Church of the Lamb. We'll get that, to that in a minute. So that has reference only to those who are sanctified. And all the rest who are not sanctified are candidates, but not, not actually of that church yet. Second Nephi 6. Blessed are the Gentiles, they of whom the prophet has written, now he's speaking of Isaiah. So they of whom the prophet has written are a specific category of people that Isaiah is talking about. For behold, if it so be that they repent and fight not against Zion and do not unite themselves with that great and abominable church. So you see that those who end up fighting against Zion, even though they're the Lord's own people, the collective, that goes astray, if they fight against Zion, they belong to the great and abominable church. They're united with it. And they can do so even long after the restoration of the gospel, at any time. So we see that our journeys are fraught with hazards. And our quest is to avoid those hazards and remain true at all times to the church of God and to his truth, to the church of the Lamb. They shall be saved, for the Lord God will fulfill his covenant which he hath made unto his children. Now, he usually says his covenants which he's made to the house of Israel. Why would he now say unto his children? Because he recognizes that now, by this time, many Gentiles have come into the gospel, and they've made covenants with the Lord themselves. And he's going to fulfill those covenants with them also. So it's more like a, a more general category now. The house of Israel, or the covenant people of the Lord, and the saints of God who come out of the Gentiles. So there is this wonderful redeeming side to the whole thing. And for this cause the prophet has written these things. Wherefore they that fight against Zion and the covenant people of the Lord, so there again you have the saints and the covenant people of the Lord because Zion are the saints of the Lord. 
shall lick up the dust of their feet, and the people of the Lord shall not be ashamed. For the people of the Lord are they who wait for him, for they still wait for the coming of the Messiah. Remember that individual scripture, I will wait for the Lord and expect him, even though the whole house of Israel is going in another direction. So we're waiting diligently for the coming of the Messiah, or we'd better be, especially as it gets closer. And this is actually a reference from Isaiah, to Isaiah 49, where there are the kings and queens of the Gentiles who nurture the house of Israel on the one hand, and also others who lick up the dust with their feet on the other. And the Gentiles go basically those two ways. First Nephi 22, all that fight against Zion shall be destroyed. Why? Because they're part of the great whore. And that great whore who hath perverted the right ways of the Lord, yea, that great and abominable church, shall tumble to the dust, and great shall be the fall of it. Just like it says in Isaiah, great shall be the fall of Babylon. Book of Revelation, the fall of Babylon. Great fall of Babylon, it shall fall. Actually, it goes into the dust. Zion rises from the dust. Babylon and Isaiah goes down into the dust. So Zion, Zion rises from the dust. It's like a resurrection imagery. It's also recreation imagery. Zion is recreated, like Joseph Smith, who could learn to ride the waves. He's now operating on a higher spiritual level, a higher physical level. Whereas Babylon goes into the dust and becomes a non-entity. Doesn't rise again. So on the one hand, we have the general apostasy of the Gentiles, as in the farm that Joseph Smith sees, as in the riverboat that flounders and perishes, as in the great and abominable church, to which many subscribe, even after the gospel has been restored among the Gentiles. From 2 Nephi 28 again, Cursed is he that putteth his trust in man. That is where it all starts somehow. You know, it's like celestial beings. Paul talks about those who say, I am of so-and-so, I'm of this person, I'm of that person, I subscribe to President What's-His-Name, and this elder so-and-so. And, you know, you don't do that. That's a form of idolatry. Those are celestial people that can't stand on their own. Cursed is he that puts his trust in man, or maketh flesh his arm, or shall hearken unto the precepts of men. It identifies celestial people in the scriptures, in the Doctrine and Covenants, as well as in Paul's writings. Say their precepts shall be given by the power of the Holy Ghost. Woe be unto the Gentiles. Lots of curses going on here, said Lord God of hosts. For notwithstanding, I shall lengthen out my arm unto them from day to day. They will deny me. Nevertheless, I will be merciful unto them, said the Lord God, if they will repent and come unto me. For mine arm is lengthened out all the day long, said the Lord of hosts, God of hosts. Now the arm is the, one of the two arms of God. This one signifies the coming of the servant. And when he begins his mission, then those to whom the Lord lengthens out his arm in intervention, like Joseph Smith in the dream of the farm. And those who deny him, you know, they will end up denying Christ, as it says here. They will deny me. But there's always a, a possibility that if they repent and come into Christ, not to the servant, not to Joseph Smith, but to Christ, who my arm is lengthened out all the day long. So the Lord is merciful to the Gentiles to the very end. Second Nephi 33, I have charity for the Jew. I say Jew because I mean them from which I came. This is um, Nephi speaking in some of his last writing. I also have charity for the Gentiles, but behold, for none of these can I hope except they shall be reconciled into Christ. It's all about you and Christ. And enter the narrow, into the narrow gate and walk in the straight path which leads to life and continue in the path until the end of the day of privation. 
So you see what he's saying there? He, he can't hope for any of us Gentiles, except we'd be reconciled to Christ. Because he sees all the devious ways in which we're going. And the gate is very narrow, and the straight of the path, Jesus said, leads to life, and few will there be who find it. You have to find it. It's not given you on a platter. You have to do it on your own with Christ. And then continue until the end of the day of probation. And this is from Christ in 3 Nephi 16. But that day when the Gentiles shall sin against my gospel and shall reject the fullness of my gospel and shall be lifted up in the pride of their hearts, like the great and the marvelable church, and like those rich in pride and wealthy people, the wise and the learned, above all nations, like the Zoramites, above all the peoples of the whole earth, maybe even more than the Zoramites, and shall be filled with all manner of lyings and of deceits and the mischief. You mean us? Really? Us? Think about it. What's going on that you don't know about? And all manner of hypocrisies, murders, and priestcrafts and whoredoms, of secret abominations, and if they shall do these things, which shall reject the fullness of my gospel, that is, once they have it, not just when it's offered to them, well, they don't know it's really the fullness of the gospel when they're baptized. They have to learn to live it, and then realize, Behold, said the Father, I will bring the fullness of my gospel from among them, because they already have it. And then will I remember my covenant, which I have made unto my people, the house of Israel, and I will bring my gospel unto them. And this is the great reversal of circumstance, the great switch over when the gospel goes to, back to the Jews and the ten tribes and Lehi's descendants and the other ethnic lineages of the house of Israel, wherever the Lord has hidden them in his vineyard, they're going to receive it. So you know that this is an end time scenario, not the time of Joseph Smith, not from that time to this. It hasn't happened yet. They're going to sin against the gospel, number one, then reject the fullness of the gospel. So when they start sinning against the gospel, they're not keeping the commandments, they're subscribing to the precepts of man. The blinders come on, they, they, their eyes are blind, and their ears are deaf. Their whole concept of the gospel has shifted imperceptibly to them into something that's not the gospel. It's something, it's morphed into something else. And yet they think that's the fullness of the gospel. No, it ain't. That's why Jesus speaks often about, at some point in the future, the clarifying of the true points of his doctrine, because there are many points of doctrine that we subscribe to that are not true. And so, it starts with that. And then, when the Lord does something big, presents new scriptures like the large place of Nephi, and all the things that Jesus explained from the beginning of the world to the ending thereof, to the Nephites that are written on the large plates that we don't have yet, or the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon, or the plates of Ether, when he presents, or other sealed books that have come forth, when he presents all those things, of course they're going to reject them. In the process, they reject the fullness of the gospel. Fortunately, we have the book of Isaiah, another reminder, because Isaiah has the fullness of the gospel in its rich Hebrew format. It is also the greater things, so if we recognize them and are familiar with them and are living by them, we'll not reject those other books, because they'll be speaking of the same thing maybe in a different context or a nuance, but it'll still be the same message. So the book of Isaiah is this great test for our day. And if you can get a handle on Isaiah, then I think you'll do well. You have so much more the advantage when those other records come forth. So they sin against the gospel first, then reject the fullness of the gospel when that fullness is represented to them, or when it's presented back to them. If they've lost it, then they don't have it anymore. If we're living the lesser law and pretending that's the, the greater law, 
you know, that's a misconception. Then when the greater law is, is presented in a new format, oh, that can't be true. We don't know about that. We've never heard that before. So it can't be true, right? That's the attitude. So you can see that this sin against the gospel now in little ways and bigger ways and bigger ways over time, generational, it, it's programming us to reject things when the servant comes along and when the arm of the Lord is extended. We're programming ourselves to reject those greater truths and to deny Christ in the end and his messengers. And then things will switch to the house of Israel. 3 Nephi 20. I say unto you that if the Gentiles do not repent after the blessing which they shall receive. What blessing is that? Of course, the gospel. The restored gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith. After they have scattered my people. After the blessing which I have received. After they have scattered my people. Then shall ye who are a remnant of the house of Jacob go forth among them. And ye shall be in the midst of them who shall be many. And ye shall be among them as a lion among the beasts of which, you know, this is a whole cursed situation. Now, when the servant comes, that is another blessing. It's like the Lord is extending his mercy to the Gentiles a second time. He's not just restoring it once. He's going to restore it again when it needs to be further restored or clarified through the bringing forth of these other records, other books. It is such an awful situation. It's such an awful state of mind to be smug and to, to assume you haven't made just because... We have the gospel now. We have the restored gospel. We have, we have it all. Uh, no, we don't. Are you translated yet? Uh, no. Well, that's way beyond me, right? Um, no, it's not. It's what's coming. And if you're not gonna, interested in that, then you'll never be. But I am. I'm willing to pay any price for that, aren't you? So tell me about it. I want to know more. Oh, no, no, we don't talk about that, you know. Yeah, this whole attitude is just, so self-denying, isn't it? This smug attitude that's so prevalent these days. But that's part of what we're talking about, part of this great sleep state and apostasy. So when the servant comes, we receive another blessing again. And then, like Jesus said, we'll come to it in a minute, we stand to be cut off, and the house of Israel comes into its own. Like a lion among the flocks of sheep, who if you go through and both tread it down and tear it in pieces, that's covenant curse. That's the same as the great abominable church tumbling to the dust. And none can deliver. Thy hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. That word cut off, it's a one single verb in Hebrew. That is an ominous verb. You can look it up throughout all the scriptures. It always seems to refer to covenant people who are cut off after they've been the covenant people of the Lord. Who are just cut off root and branch. No posterity to claim no ancestor that want them. I will gather my people together as a man gathers his sheaves to his floor. So at the same time the enemies are, are cut off, the Lord's people are gathered. It's a reversal of circumstances between the two. For I will make my people with whom the Father hath covenanted, I will make thy horn iron and thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many peoples. Now remember this was done to them by the Gentiles, to the covenant people of the Lord, whether the Jews or the the ten tribes, or Lehi's descendants, and now it's going to be reversed. Now it's going to happen to them. I will consecrate their gain unto the Lord, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. And behold, I am he who doeth it. So the Lord is behind this whole thing, and the impetus of it. And what gain is that anyway? I suppose it's all their material gains, and they now gain the blessings of the, of the gospel in the place of the Gentiles. 
And it shall come to pass, say the Father, that the sword of my justice shall hang over them at that day, and except they repent, it shall fall upon them, said the Father, yea, even upon all the nations of the Gentiles, it shall come to pass that I will establish my people, the house of Israel. So in the day that the sword falls, destruction falls upon all the nations of the Gentiles, that is the time he reestablishes, restores the house of Israel. At that very time, the two go hand in hand. But notice, it's the apostasy of the Lord's covenant people that precipitates this whole thing. And once it starts with them, and they are the catalyst of it, then it spreads throughout all the nations of the Gentiles. It starts with the apostasy of God's people, as it did in the past, with the great destructions that happened anciently. Here it is, 3521. For in that day, for my sake, shall the Father work a work, which shall be a great and marvelous work among them, and there shall be among them those who will not believe it. Among who? Among the Gentiles, he's talking about. Although a man shall declare it unto them. What man is that? Well, presumably the servant who comes along and tells them, this is the great and marvelous work. It's not what you thought it is. But behold, the life of my servant shall be in my hand. Therefore they shall not hurt him, although he shall be marred or disfigured, is the word, because of them. Yet I will heal him, for I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. So it requires a miracle of healing to heal this person. And that's quoting Isaiah 52 about being marred and 57 about being healed. And notice this is an end time scenario. It's not the time of Joseph Smith. It's quoting Isaiah, which is an end time scenario. You can't just willy-nilly pick and choose from Isaiah and apply it to one time frame, then another time frame. It doesn't work that way. Isaiah's is an end time scenario. The whole thing is. All that's historically mentioned there is an allegory of the end time. For I will show unto them that my wisdom is greater than the cunning of the devil. So who's marring this person? Who's disfiguring or cause, causing him to be disfigured? The devil. But who's the founder of the great and abominable church? The devil. So what does that tell you about these people who are doing the marring? They don't belong to the church of the Lamb. They belong to the church of the devil. So they've already changed sides by that time. Like the dream of the farm. They were his enemies. Therefore it shall come to pass that whosoever will not believe in my words, shall Jesus Christ, his words, not hearken ye to our precept, who am Jesus Christ, which the Father shall cause him to bring forth unto the Gentiles, us, and shall give unto him power that he shall bring them forth unto the Gentiles. It shall be done even as Moses said, they shall be cut off from among my people who are of the covenant. And the words of Christ are those words on the large plates of Nephi that we don't have yet, that contain the greater things that Mormon and Moroni were forbidden to put into the current plates of the Book of Mormon. And they will be cut off among the people who are of the covenant. That's again, us. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints are today the people of the Covenant. There was no Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints of any significant numbers in the time of Joseph Smith that they could be cut off from. It was just starting. So we see how ridiculous these other interpretations are that we find everywhere, that people actually believe. If you point out the truth to them, they say, oh, that's not in the manual. I mean, come on. Well, that's not what the chapter heading says. <laughs> well, yeah, it doesn't. And my people who remnant of, of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles. There we go. It's the time of the switch over. And the gospel turns from the Gentiles to the house of Israel, not the time of Joseph Smith. I mean, how obvious is this? And yet, why don't they get it? Who uh, a remnant of, of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of them as a lion of the beasts. Among the beasts, there's a young lion among the flocks of sheep who if he goeth through, both tread it down. 
among the sheep, mind you. But what sheep? Well, the sheep of the fold, right? Treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Their hands shall be lifted up upon their adversaries, and all their enemies shall be cut off. Why does he say this twice, or three times? Because that's what's going to happen, so we should get it, right? All their enemies shall be, what? Cut off. And by definition, that always seems to be cut off among the people of the covenant, as I read a moment ago. Right here, the bottom. They shall be cut off among the people of the covenant. Yea, woe be unto the Gentiles, curse, except they repent, for it shall come to pass in that day, said the Father, that I will cut off thy horses out of the midst of thee, and will destroy thy chariots, and I will cut off the cities of thy land, and throw down all their strongholds, and will cut off witchcrafts out of thy land, thou shalt no more have no more soothsayers. And thy graven images also will I cut off, and thy standing images out of the midst of thee. What? Standing images? Ah, like, let me think. Do we have standing images? What about our television sets? Are they standing images? How about that? Oh no, that can't be true, can it? Uh, yeah. Thou shalt no more worship the works of thy hands. Well, we don't really worship them, we just like them, right? We like them so much that we can't do without them. And I will pluck up thy groves out of the midst of thee, and so will I destroy thy cities. And shall come to pass that all lyings and deceivings, and envy and stripes, and priest cops and whoredoms shall be done away. Because when things go into an apostate state, it keeps progressively getting worse and worse and worse until the iniquity is full. And everything is so dysfunctional, like that farm or like that olive tree and other situations, without the people even being aware. For it shall come to pass that the Father at that day, that whosoever will not repent and come unto my beloved Son, then will I cut off from among my people, O house of Israel, and I will execute vengeance and fury upon them, even as upon the heathen, such as they have not heard, such as we have not heard. And we've heard some pretty amazing things thus far, all the forms of destruction that are out there possible today. Turn, all you Gentiles, from your wicked ways and repent of your evil doings, of your lyings and deceiving as your whoredoms. You know, we think, well, lying, well, I don't lie. You know, I don't, I don't lie. I mean, I might deceive myself a little bit, or I'll let this person think this and this and that, or I'll just tell a little white lie just to get out of the situation. I mean, these things are so imperceptible that we don't think of ourselves as liars. Heck no, I'm not a liar. You sure? Are you sure we're totally honest in everything? And no self-deception, no deceiving of others? Whoredoms, you know? What about pornography? Isn't that, isn't that whoredom? Secret abominations, isn't pornography a secret abomination? Or drugs, or idolatries? The things that we cherish and love, the, the works of our hands, as Isaiah says? Murders, you know, when we live evil lifestyles, we actually can become murderers. If you cause others to commit suicide, uh, an influence upon them, and don't rescue them from their situations, or if we, if we do abortions, priestcrafts, unrighteous priesthood authority, and envyings and strifes, vying for positions, you know, GA wannabes, I mean, you name it, strifes, all your wickedness and abominations, and come unto me and be baptized in my name come unto Christ, that ye may receive a remission of your sins. But that's only the first step. That's just coming clean. That's not even going beyond that to greater empowerment, to rebirth on many spiritual levels, till finally you are translated. 
and be filled with the Holy Ghost that you may be numbered with my people over the house of Israel. That's just the starting point. All right, we'll take a break and then we'll come back in five minutes. All right, let's start up again. I'm so glad the sound is better that you can hear better back there. I wish I had agreed with Mike earlier. He had suggested it. So there is a, a wonderful redeeming side to this whole thing, but that does require people who ascend to the translated state, like Joseph Smith in the riverboat dream. He learns power over the elements, which is what translated beings have. And there is a way of escape, as we see him also get out of the barn safely. Lord provides that for his elect. So we go to 2 Nephi 6. Now the words which I shall read are they which Isaiah spake concerning all the house of Israel. I'll read this from Jacob. Wherefore they liken unto you, for ye are the house of Israel, and there are many things which have been spoken by Isaiah which may be likened unto you, because ye are the house of Israel, and now these are the words. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles. This is from Isaiah 49, it's quoting. 22 and 23, and set up my standard, or ensign. The King James is so um, inaccurate, well, inconsistent in translating that. And this is using the King James translation of the Bible, basically. Sometimes it translates the word ness, ensign, sometimes standard, sometimes banner. Set up my ensign, or standard, to the people, or peoples. They shall bring thy sons in their arms, and thy daughters shall be carried upon their shoulders. And the daughters and the sons our particular definition or a spiritual category of God's people, as we've covered before, signifying the elect of God. And we also see that kind of confirmed in Spencer's book, Visions of Glory, where those who actually are carried in, through the portals by these translated beings, or by the 144,000, are the elect of God. And Jesus also said he will send out his angels, which translated beings are, Three Nephites were likened into the angels of God. He will send out his angels and they will, you know, bring him and gather his elect from the four winds. And kings shall be thy nursing fathers and queens thy nursing mothers. So these, these are the kings and queens of the Gentiles, the spiritual kings and queens who nurture the house of Israel in the gospel and then bring them out physically when they attain the, trans, the elect level. And they shall bow down to thee with their faces to the earth and look up the dust of thy feet, that's also part of that verse in Isaiah, but it doesn't apply to the kings and queens of the Gentiles, as we see later on, where he makes a distinction between the two categories of the Gentiles. Those who become kings and queens, that is, those who become translated and, and nurture the house of Israel, and power over the elements to bring them sort of safely out of destruction, or those who join the great abominable church and will suffer the fate of the great abominable church. They're the ones who lick up the dust of the feet of those whom they persecuted. But they were part of the same category originally, that the one was cut off and the other ones kept progressing. And thou shalt know that I am the Lord, for they shall not be ashamed that wait for me. When he says things like that, that I shall know that I am the Lord, it doesn't just mean that, in context, in Isaiah, it doesn't just mean that all they know of the Lord, and they know that He does this and this wonderful thing. It means they actually know Him personally. And the verb to know is one of those kind of words in the theology of the Hebrew prophets. They shall know the Lord. They shall know that I am the Lord, but they shall actually 
have a face-to-face -face encounter with him, for they shall not be ashamed to wait for me, because he's going to come to them, either individually at first or collectively in his second coming, or to the temple in the New Jerusalem or the temple in the Old Jerusalem. Second Nephi 10, Behold, thus said the Lord God, when the day cometh that they shall believe in me, this is speaking of the Jews. But just as it is with one category, like the seed of Lehi that we saw earlier, or with the Jews in this case, or with the ten tribes, what he speaks of one is generally applies to all of the house of Israel, to the three branches of the house of Israel, together. When they come with shall believe in me that I am Christ, then I have covenant with their fathers that they shall be restored in the flesh upon the earth unto the lands of their inheritance. It shall come to pass that they shall be gathered from their long dispersion from the isles of the sea and from the four parts of the earth. And the nations of the Gentiles shall be great in the eyes of me, saith God, in carrying them forth to the lands of their inheritance. Yea, the kings of the Gentiles shall be nursing fathers to them, and their queens shall become nursing mothers. Wherefore the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles. For he has spoken it. Yes, that's on the one hand, those Gentiles who ascend to that level. And who can dispute? Well, those who dispute it, of course, are the other Gentiles who, who, who end up fighting against those very Gentiles that become the kings and queens. Because as it says in Isaiah, they have a, there's a great contrast between the two, and the one persecutes the other. For he hath spoken it, and who can dispute? For behold, this land, saith God, shall be a land of thine inheritance, and the Gentiles shall be blessed upon the land. So maybe this was not speaking of the Jews, maybe of the descendants of Lehi. It doesn't matter because it's the same scenario for the whole house of Israel. So notice that these, these kings and queens then, the nursing fathers and nursing mothers, come out of the Gentiles and that's why the promises of the Lord are great unto the Gentiles. And the Gentiles will be blessed upon the land together with the house of Israel all through the coming times. Those Gentiles, that is, who repent and are numbered among them and become part of them. And this land shall be a land of liberty unto the Gentiles, and there shall be no kings upon the land who shall raise up unto the Gentiles. Well, yes, there will be, but only for a kind of a, an abortive attempt of one. Uh, there will be attempts to set up a king, as we see here. For he that raised up a king against me shall perish. Verse 14. I will fortify this land against all other nations, and he that fight against Zion shall perish, saith God. So here we have a parallel between this land and Zion. So this land eventually will become the land of Zion. So certainly at the beginning of its history, there were no kings upon this land. And we've seen that all through North and South America. They're all kind of democracies of a kind, of one kind or another. But then we see that there is an attempt to set up a king. He that raises up a king against me shall perish. For I, the Lord, the King of heaven, will be their king. And I will be a light unto them forever that hear my words. Wherefore, for this cause, that my covenants may be fulfilled, which I have made unto the children of men, that I will do unto them while they are in the flesh, and must needs destroy the secret works of darkness, and of murders, and abominations. Wherefore, he that fighting against Zion, both Jew and Gentile, both bond and free, both male and female, shall perish. Here then, we kind of see the parallel between the secret works of darkness and attempts to set up a king in the land. That wouldn't be there unless all of these things are actually going to happen. But that's also the very time that the kings and queens of the Gentiles, the spiritual kings and queens of the Gentiles, not political kings and queens, do their thing. That's the time that they minister to the house of Israel, at the very time that these attempts are being made to set up a king in the land. So those things will be going on at the same time. 
For they are they who are the whore of all the earth. So you can be part of the Jews or part of, of, the, of the covenant people. You can be part of the members of the church. But you're the whore of all the earth if you're not for what the Lord is going to do. And what he's going to do is raise up Gentile kings and queens. And if you're not part of them, then where are you? For they who are not for me are against me, saith God. Well, how much do you want me to be for you, O Lord? Well, all of you, of course. He wants us to be for him with our whole souls and beings, not just, well, I kind of lean this way a little bit. You can't afford to lean anyway in this scenario, because you go straight with the Lord or not at all. For I will fill my promises which I have made unto the children of men. There again we have not the house of Israel, not your fathers, the covenants made with them, or promises, but to the children of men, because these kings and queens of the Gentiles have their own covenants with the Lord. That's part of what being a proxy savior for others is all about. And he's going to honor those covenants. That's why he makes it more generic to the children of men when he fulfills his promises with them. That I will do unto them while they're in the flesh, not just after this life, some distant aeon away. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, said our God, I will afflict thy, afflict thy seed by the hand of the Gentiles. Nevertheless, I will soften the hearts of the Gentiles that they shall be like a father unto them. And the father is a technical term of a proxy savior all through the Hebrew prophets, particularly in Isaiah. You have fathers and sons. Wherefore, the Gentiles, so the elect of God are their sons and daughters also, for a time anyway, to these fathers who are the kings and queens of the Gentiles. Wherefore the Gentiles shall be blessed and numbered among the house of Israel. Wherefore I will consecrate this land unto thy seed and them who shall be numbered among thy seed forever for the land of their inheritance. For it is a choice land unto me, said God, who have all of the lands. Wherefore I will have all men that dwell thereon that they worship me, God. Not men, not this, not that or the other thing. Not the church, just him. And this is where that comes from in Isaiah about the kings and queens. Thus says my Lord Jehovah, I will lift up my hand to the Gentiles, or the nations, is another translation, raise up my ensign to the people. But we know that the hand of the ensign is the servant of the Lord, the end time servant of the Lord, from Isaiah chapter 11, where the sprig of Jesse, the Lord raises up the sprig of Jesse, who stands for an ensign to the peoples, or he lifts up his hand, he raises up his hand, gathers the exiles of Israel, the scattered of Judah, and so forth. There, Isaiah makes clear that the hand or the ensign is that servant. And they will bring your sons in their bosoms and carry your daughters in their shoulders. So that is the time when this whole scenario of kings and queens of the Gentiles starts happening, which means that the very time that there is attempts to set up a king in the land is also the time when that Lord, the Lord's servant comes. So that could be very soon because there seem to be rumorings of attempts to set up a king in the land right now if you watch closely. And I don't mean the Donald. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens your nursing mothers. See, that's the first half of that verse. And then the second half of the verse. They will bow down before you, their faces to the ground. They will look up the dust of your feet. Then shall they know that I am the Lord, etc. They who, who hope in me await for me are not disappointed. So on the one hand, you have the Gentiles who become the kings and queens, who rise to that amazing level of translated beings, as Tom sees. And then you know that the, the others are also going to beat the dust like the harlot Babylon or the great abominable church. 3 Nephi 16, I command you that you shall write these sayings after I'm gone, 
this is Jesus speaking, that if it so be that my people at Jerusalem who have seen me and been with me in my ministry do not ask the Father in my name, that they may receive a knowledge of you by the Holy Ghost and also of the other tribes whom they know not of, that these sayings which you shall write shall be kept and shall be manifested unto the Gentiles, that through the fullness of the Gentiles, remember that's the seed of Ephraim, or the offspring of Ephraim, the birthright tribe, that through the fullness of the Gentiles, the remnant of their seed, that is, you know, the Jews, all of the house of Israel, we shall be scattered forth upon the face of the earth, particularly the Jews, more scattered than anybody, because of their unbelief, may be brought in or may be brought to a knowledge of me, their Redeemer. That is an actual knowledge, personal knowledge. And then will I gather them from the four quarters of the earth, and then will I fulfill the covenant which the Father has made unto all the people of the house of Israel. And blessed are the Gentiles because of their belief in me, in and of the Holy Ghost, which witnesses unto them of me and of the Father. Behold, because of their belief in me, said the Father, because of the unbelief of you, O house of Israel, in the latter days, or in the end time, really, shall the truth come unto the Gentiles, that the fullness of these things shall be made known unto them. The truth. Well, we have partial truth today, but the whole truth is going to come out because of a flood of records that are going to come forth. And the fullness of these things, not just a partial knowledge of them, will be known to them. And when these works and the works which shall be wrought among you hereafter shall come forth from the Gentiles, and to your seed which shall dwindle down belief because of iniquity. Now, we don't have all the works which were wrought among the Nephites hereafter, after Christ. We have kind of a synopsis in the Book of Mormon, an abridgment that Mormon and Moroni did. But no, we don't have all the other things that they did and that would be kept in reserve to come forth in the end time. So he's really speaking about something still future. Shall come forth from the Gentiles to your seed. But we're still, us Gentiles are still the vehicle that brings them forth unto them. Like the large plates of Nephi, the servant brings it forth to us and we then take them to the house of Israel. And then many don't believe it of us and they will be cut off from among us. But it's always through the Gentiles. And why does he go through the Gentiles? Why doesn't he go directly to the house of Israel? Because they once rejected the truth. They rejected him and apostatized. For those who behoove the Father should come forth from the Gentiles that he may show forth this power unto the Gentiles for this cause that the Gentiles, if they will not harden their hearts, that they may repent and come unto me and be baptized in my name and know of the true points of my doctrine that they may be numbered among my people or house of Israel. We haven't yet been numbered among the house of Israel because the true points of his doctrine still need to be clarified. And who does that? Well, the servant does. And all the records that have come forth will clarify those true points of his doctrine. Right now we have many precepts of men that are not true points of his doctrine. They all need to be disabused from their minds. And when these things come to pass that thy seed shall begin to know these things, it shall be a sign unto them that they may know that the work of the Father hath already commenced unto fulfilling of the covenant which he has made unto his people of the house of Israel. And that work is the great and marvelous work, which is the restoration of the house of Israel and the Lord bringing forth his covenants unto them. The covenants that were the plain and precious parts of the gospel that were done away by the great and abominable church, which many of those things we have inherited from the great and abominable church without even realizing it. We've just assumed things from Christianity out there in general that we still believe even though we have the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon and the Doctrine and Covenants. There are many concepts we subscribe to interpretations of our scriptures that lead to these precepts of men that are our legacy of the great Nevada Church in the gospel. And we don't even realize that we're doing that. And when that day shall come, 
It shall come to pass that kings shall shut their mouths, those same kings and queens, for that which they had not been told them, they shall see, and that which they had not heard, they shall consider. Those truths that have been hid, or that we've assumed on the one hand to be one thing, but really they're another, things that we've inherited from the great and abominable church, that we just assumed without questioning, without analyzing, without searching the scriptures, whether they be so. 52, and that's where this servant appears. My servant being astute, like Solomon, shall be highly exalted, like Solomon. He shall become exceedingly eminent. This is he appalled many. His appearance was marred beyond human likeness, like King Uriah. He had, his whole form is disfigured by leprosy. So Isaiah is using all of these types to describe the servant in Isaiah 52 and 53. The semblance unlike that of men. He's barely recognizable as human. So yet shall he astound many nations, kings shutting their mouths at him, like Solomon. What was not told them they shall see, what they had not heard they shall consider. We've covered this in many other contexts before, but basically, even these kings and queens need to be educated in the true points of his doctrine. They're assuming one thing, and when they hear the truth, really? Now I see it, they'll say. You know, now I see clearly, I hadn't considered that, I hadn't thought about that. So then they need to come up the learning curve before they can function fully as kings and queens and attain a translated state. <clears throat> yes, they're kings and queens spiritually. They may be the elect of God at this time or close to that, but there's still things that they are ignorant of, that they've bought into, that need to be clarified. But the thing is about the elect of God, they'll hear the truth and they'll accept it. They intuitively recognize it. And that's the difference between them whose ways are pure before God, as pure as they could make it at least, and those whose ways are not pure before God, who will subscribe to any precept of man and think it's the truth. Mormon 5.10. And now this, behold, I speak unto their seed and also the Gentiles who have care for the house of Israel and realize and know from whence their blessings come. This is an interesting scripture because the Gentiles who have care for the house of Israel are these kings and queens of the house of Israel that become nursing fathers and nursing mothers to them or that serve in the role of proxy saviors to them, to preach the gospel to them, to answer for their disloyalties to the emperor, so to speak, as in emperor vassal covenants for a time until they're able to stand on their own feet spiritually, so to speak. And so they have care for the house of Israel. They look beyond their own immediate welfare or that of their own families and friends, they're willing to go all out like John the Revelator who wanted to bring souls to Christ so long as the world shall stand, which was also the desire of the three Nephites and by the analogy with them of all those who were translated anciently, they were looking out for more than just themselves. They were looking out to save all men that they could. And they realized and know from whence their blessings come because those blessings to these Gentiles are the blessings of the gospel and of the blessings of the house of Israel through God's covenant with the house of Israel, not with them, unless they enter into that covenant, so to speak, and become part of it. They know that these are really the blessings of the house of Israel, which the house of Israel rejected and then passed to the Gentiles for a time. So they owe the house of Israel a debt. Thank God for us that they apostatized. So we could, like Paul, that's Paul's argument in Romans 11. Because of their unbelief, you stand by faith. It's a beautiful scenario the way the Lord has instituted and orchestrated this plan of salvation, exaltation, so he might redeem the whole earth, not just a single people. Two opposite end-time destinies. 
Verse Nephi 14 again. Woe be unto the Gentiles. Huh. Now we have blessed are the Gentiles on the one hand, we have woe unto the Gentiles. Have you noticed that? How many times does this keep appearing? If it so be that they harden their hearts against the Lamb of God, will they do that after they receive the gospel, as you read in three occasions from Third Nephi, Jesus speaking. For the time cometh, said the Lamb of God, that I will work a great and marvelous work among the children of men. And that has so been misinterpreted because people don't read on or read every instance of great and marvelous work in the Book of Mormon to see how the Book of Mormon defines it or how Isaiah defines it because he's the one that talks about it in Isaiah 29. For the time cometh, said the Lamb of God, that I will work the time cometh, the time cometh, that usually is a phrase meaning the end time, that I will work a great and marvelous work among the children of men, or a greatly marvelous work, a work which shall be everlasting either on the one hand or on the other. So after that point in time, it's a cutoff point, it's either one or the other by that time. It's too late. You've decided already a long time ago which side you were on. Now it happens. Boom. You're either on one end, part of the great and marvelous church, or part of the Lamb of God, Church of the Lamb. A great marvelous work among the children of men, among everybody across the board. A work which shall be everlasting, either on the one hand or on the other, to the convincing of them unto peace and life eternal, or unto deliverance of them to the hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, unto their being brought down into captivity and also into destruction. Now this doesn't happen just immediately. Remember how it started off with Laman and Laman not inquiring whether Lehi's dream was true and wanting to know for themselves? Oh no, the Lord teaches us tells us no such thing. And, and that was defined by Nephi as a hardening of the heart. And how many of us are, are refusing to inquire for ourselves? If you even discuss these subjects with people, they think, you're off on some weird quest, right? You're, why do you even think about such things? I don't, so why should you? It gets to the point eventually where that really sets in and you become in bondage to that point of view. And then progressively, as 2 Nephi 28 tells us, Progressively, you get into a, a, a space that's even more, you know, hardened, and eventually you become like those people in the barn. You're angry and you, you can't stand that anybody else is doing anything different than you. And that's the point where this, it, this, that this gets to. It's an everlasting decision on the one hand or on the other. You can't convince anybody otherwise at that point in time. Either to the convincing of them and to peace and life, eternal, eternal life, eternal lives, peace, the peace of Christ, or unto the limits of them, to the hardness of their hearts and blindness of their minds, which is what the great abominable church does, right? But through these precepts of men and taking away the plain and precious prize and the covenants of the Lord, they're being brought down into captivity also to destruction. Eventually that captivity or bondage to sin and iniquity leads to their destruction. Just like we saw in the dream of the barn. They start killing themselves, both temporally and spiritually, according to the captivity of the devil of which I have spoken. Because he's the author of all of this. It's a clever thing that, to do, especially if you think of the idea how he puts people in, between a rock and a hard place in the fact that, well, you know, I really believe this because everybody's been saying that. So I give these people my allegiance, and so to speak. I'm part of this. And this is just a lone voice over here saying something different. So which way am I going to go? Uh, it's like between a rock and a hard place. Right now, it's a comfortable situation to go with the collective. But in the end, you're going to end up being destroyed. Or, right now, it's going to be really difficult if I step out in, on my own, so to speak, with God, just him and me. I'll get persecuted. I'll be looked down on. I'll be maybe even exed. And 
but better that than later on be part of what happens to them. I'm willing to pay any price for that. So if I go with Christ, I may have to suffer, but you know, I do this with my eyes open. So long as it's with the ones that the Lord sends you, like the servant, and not you know, wannabe servants that are out there that are already today leading people astray, as you've seen. You see it in the 90s, you see it right now. So be careful. It's a fine line you have to walk these days. Verse Nephi 14, It came to pass that I beheld that the great mother of abomination did gather together multitudes upon the faces of the, all the earth among all the nations of the Gentiles. So everybody gets in the act eventually. They all hate the house of Israel. They hate God's people, just like the Nazis did, to fight against the Lamb of God. I mean, they really fought against the Jews. And not just the Jews. Slavs, too, which are the house of Israel. And gypsies, they were the house of Israel. They did them in. I came to pass that I, Nephi, beheld the power of the Lamb of God that had descended upon the saints of the Church of the Lamb and upon the covenant people of the Lord. Now this is after that great division happens. Then it starts talking about saints. Because until then, you know, you have saints and wannabe saints, or gonna be saints, or maybe saints, or ain'ts. But at some point after that decision has been made, on the one hand, on the other, everlastingly, then you have saints only, the ones who are willing to be persecuted for it. Sanctified ones. They're actually sanctified, meaning celestial category people. Upon them the power of God ascends. If you're celestial, have made sure you're calling election, the elect of God. And upon the covenant people of the Lord, to whom they minister, who were scattered upon all the face of the earth, and they were armed with righteousness, with the power of God in great glory. And this is an end time scenario. Again, it's not the time of Joseph Smith. It's not that great, it's not the great marvelous work. By definition, that restoration was called the beginning, commencement, or foundation, as I've mentioned many times before. It came to pass that I beheld the wrath of God was poured out upon the great abominable church, insomuch that there were wars and rumors of wars among all the nations and kingdoms of the Gentiles. So, it's at the end, the end time, before the coming of the Lord, immediately before the coming of the Lord. So again, you have deliverance on the one hand and destruction on the other, both happening simultaneously. Second Nephi 30, Behold, my beloved brethren, I would speak unto you, for I, Nephi, would not suffer that you should suppose, he's speaking to his own people, that you are more righteous than the Gentiles shall be. For behold, except you shall keep the commandments of God, you shall all likewise perish. You mean the Gentiles are all going to perish? Uh, yeah. That's what he's saying between the lines, right? For because of the words which have been spoken, you need not suppose that the Gentiles are utterly destroyed, but mostly destroyed then. Yes. Like the Nephites and like the, the um, Cherodites before them in this land. For behold, I say unto you that as many of the Gentiles as will repent are the covenant people of the Lord, as Jesus says also in 3 Nephi 21. So it starts with repenting and on the one hand, or a hardening of the heart on the other. Christ again. If if the Gentiles will repent and return unto me, said the Father, behold, they shall be numbered among my people, the house of Israel. Well, that is among one of the three main branches, among the Jews, the ten tribes, or Lehi's descendants, three main natural branches. And I will not suffer my people who are the house of Israel to go through among them and tread them down, but if they will not turn to me and hearken to my voice, I will suffer them. It's always turning to Christ, turning to Christ, turning to Christ, coming unto Christ, waiting for Christ, 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 Christ. If your life is not centered to Him, get going. Bring it about. I will suffer them, yea, I will suffer my people of the house of Israel that they shall go through among them and tread them down, and there shall be a salt that is left its savor, which is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of my people of the house of Israel. 
And this scripture from Doctrine and Covenants makes it more clear. They were set to be a light to the world, that's us, to be saviors of men, us. And as much as they are not saviors of men, they are as salt as lost its savor, and as thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden underfoot of men. And so there you have the, the two main destinies of the Gentiles. On the one hand, saviors of men, on the other, salt and lost its savor. Because we've had the savor, we've had the gospel preached to us, and what have we done with it? We have muddied the waters with precepts of men and are not bringing forth good fruit anymore. And here's an example from the Book of Mormon of what can happen to us and what will happen to us. They were once a delightsome people, and they had Christ for their shepherd. Yea, they were led even by God the Father. But now, behold, they are led about by Satan, even as chaff is driven before the wind, whereas a vessel is tossed out upon the waters, like that riverboat dream, right? Without sail or anchor, without anything wherewith to steer her. And even as she is, so are they. And behold, the Lord has reserved their blessings, which they might have received in the land for the Gentiles, who shall possess the land. But this time it turns around, and the blessing that we have received now turns back to the house of Israel. But behold, it shall come to pass that they shall be driven and scattered by the Gentiles, like we will be. They will be like a lion among the beasts among us. And after they have been driven and scattered by the Gentiles, behold, then will the Lord remember the covenant which he hath made unto Abraham and to all the house of Israel. That's when he reverses that situation in our day prior to the coming of the Lord. And also the Lord will remember the prayers of the righteous, which shall be put up unto him for them. And then, O ye Gentiles, how shall you stand before the power of God, except you shall repent and turn from your evil ways? Know ye not that you are in the hands of God? Know ye not that he hath all power? That at his great command the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll? Oh, that can never happen. Well, these wonderful, amazing, casual assumptions that the people out there have it just boggles my mind. All this is you know, you've read all this, don't you really believe this? It's coming. Oh, well, not in my day, so I'm okay. No, really. Therefore, repent and humble yourself before him, lest he shall come out in justice against you, lest the remnant of the seed of Jacob shall go forth among you as a lion and tear you in pieces, and there was none to deliver. Well, that's never happened in this country before, so why should it happen now? I mean, yeah, those kind of rationalizations go on and on and on. Ether two. This cometh unto you, Gentiles, is from Moroni, that you may know the decrees of God, that you may repent. These are decrees. They're going to be fulfilled. There's no question that they're not. And not continue in your iniquities until the fullness come. That's the fullness of iniquity. That you may not bring the fullness down the fullness of the wrath of God upon you as the inhabitants of the land have hitherto done. It's happened twice. You have their example before. And now, you know, you, you're next. And there's an announcement about the Hebrews. We're getting this together. Um, Mike, do you want to tell anything about that? We're very excited about the, the um, conference that's coming up. And we hope that all of you will spread the word if you know people. Um, there's going to be amazing speakers. And Oliver Thompson, he's really been inspired about who's going to talk, who's going to be there. It'll be just a wonderful opportunity to, to go. It'll be an amazing dinner. It'll be a lot of fun. It'll be a great date if you have someone to take. So it's on the 14th of uh, May. And Mike and Nancy were there yesterday checking out the grand ballroom at the U, uh, UVU uh, campus. And uh, they were so impressed by everything, the sound system, the congeniality of the people there. They, were, they determined the menu for us. And then the concert afterwards um, that will be 
an hour long or more, and the color guard of the 12 tribes in the beginning of the opening up the whole day for us. And, and it's going to be quite something. The first conference of the Hebrews Foundation, and we hope to do them every six months after that. And so we're going to try to bring Zion to your consciousness. And, uh, do you want to take just a few questions? Uh, yeah, you have time for about a few. That's right. Can you elaborate a little more about the king shutting their mouths? Are they just shutting their mouths to receive and to learn? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because they're considering things they had not heard before. But they're now, their eyes are being opened, so to speak. So, and they, they have an authority that's greater than them, so they're willing to listen. Yes. Rhonda. You spoke of the reversal between the Gentiles and the house of Israel and in the literary message of Isaiah, and you called it the reversal of circumstances tonight. In the literary message, you talk about the reversal of circumstances between Babylon and Zion, and yes. you say that's the reversal of circumstances. Can we connect the reversal, of the fall of Babylon with the rejection of the servant of the Gentiles and the redemption of Zion with the gospel going back to Hazel? Yes, I was already making the connection between Babylon and the whore of all I the earth. I wanted to make sure yeah. that I was making the right conjecture. Zion and Babylon, in this case, the, the great embalm of the church and the saints of God and the covenant people of the Lord. Is that so with that parallelism, would you say that it's the marring of the servant that precipitates the fall of Babylon? The marring of the servant precipitates the fall of Babylon. I think you can say that, yes. That's, for, that's kind of the, the key point of origin of the great division, it seems like. The servant's mission on the earth. Is, is the key point of the great division. Yes, Susan. So you talk about the wannabe's servant. So how do we, what's the best way to determine the wannabes from the real one? The question is, how do we determine the wannabes from the real servant? And it's always been the case. It's not that difficult because the, the false messiahs and false Christs and false prophets, they won't follow the true paradigms. They won't follow the true patterns of God in the past. There'll be something about their pattern that's different. And you'll recognize that. You may not recognize it right away, but if you have the Spirit too, the Spirit can warn you. There'll be red flags along the way, and that's not quite the way the Lord. And these wannabes are these counterfeit ones that come first before the real thing. It always happens that way. They'll be so close to the truth. And have you noticed that, that their arguments and their points and their teachings are getting more and more refined, so close to the truth? That, but there's always something about them that's not quite right. So it becomes even more difficult as we get closer to the time of the coming to actually discern the truth. But, but that's also part of the plan. The Lord allows all of this to happen to turn those whose hearts are not with Him away to these people. On the one hand, He creates a spiritual void. And, and then people seek to, seek, seek to fill that spiritual void by turning to other leaders. Instead of leaders that are not part of his, you know, well, these false prophets. But that's not who they should turn to. They should be turning to Christ. And if they turn fully with their whole hearts to Christ, they would not lead. And the same thing happens within the church. If you, if you focus too much on one leader, and that leader doesn't fill your void, you'll turn to another leader, maybe a false leader, who may try to fill your void, your spiritual void. But you know what I'm saying? You'll try to find some substitute. But the whole focus should never be on a leader. It should be on Christ from the beginning, from the get-go, and all the way through. And then when the servant comes, he'll be speaking the words of Christ. And you'll know it because you're so familiar with Christ already. 
and his words to you. So there's a danger in, like I said earlier, some say they're Paul and some of Cephas and some of Isaiah and some of... That defines a category of celestial people who place their trust in some person, who trust, place their trust in man, in the arm of flesh. And of course they're going to be led astray. It's the natural consequence. So, and then, I think also a big answer to your question is, is so familiarize yourself with Isaiah and with the scriptures that do teach these fuller things and the true points of his doctrine, the greater things that are found in the other scriptures that have come forth, that you're so familiar with them, so when somebody comes along and claims this or that or the other, as there have come along so many people that have done that, Isaiah will correct you. It will not mesh with what Isaiah teaches. And Isaiah has the fullness of the gospel. Jesus said he spoke about all things touching my people of the house of Israel, past, present, future, and the fullness of the gospel, and all its Hebrew richness, all there. I've analyzed it these last 40 or more 50 years, and I've put it out in all my books, trying to teach it to people. It's not, it's not hard, it's not alien, it's just the gospel in its full form, in its enriching and full form. And it's the most beautiful thing. So that when those other scriptures come forth, we'll be able to compare them with Isaiah. But like I said, if we're not there already to some degree, maybe by now when these arguments of the counterfeits become more and more refined and sophisticated, you know, we need to keep up with that and, and be above that still. Be one step ahead of them in our thinking and in our discernment. Any other questions? Right, and there. One more question at the back. So when this servant comes, um, will he be the person that brings back all these other scriptures? Or will that happen before him? Or? Will that servant bring back all these other scriptures or will that happen before, before he comes? It seems to me that from 3 Nephi 21 that he's the one, the main one that brings forth the, the uh, scriptures, the additional scriptures. Now there may be others, there may be others of the 144,000 or translated beings who will be with him. And there may be some person who, like um, the plates of ether, of, of which Moroni says, well, he who finds them will have the power to translate them. You mean he who finds them? You mean it's up for grabs? Yeah, yeah, sure. And he'll have the power to translate them because they'll be the Urim and Thummim. Maybe he'll find them by a seer stone or Urim and Yeah, so there may be other seers who, who bring forth scriptures and translate them at that time. So yeah, both are probably true. The servant probably the main body of scriptures and then maybe other individuals, but they'll all be part of the same servants of the Lord at that time. Robin? Well, I was just wondering, you know, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls and the whole part of Isaiah and then Qumran and all these other things and it's like they haven't been really readily available and lost to scholars, but it seems like they support like first temple kind of stuff and the um, endowment, could those be part of those records or no? I don't believe that the Dead Sea Scrolls are, no. Right. Yeah, 1 Nephi 1.14 says that, that many of these books have been sealed up to come forth in their purity um, at some point. Well, that point is in the day of power because the, it's not just some Arab kid finding something in the, in the desert from an apostate sect, they were also not quite, so. Yeah, I would say that it's a specific end time scenario when these records come forth. And flood the earth is with a flood, as it says in the book of 
Moses. He will send down righteousness out of heaven and truth out of the earth. They will flood the earth as with a flood. That hasn't happened yet. There's one other question. But, but sure. it is interesting that the Isaiah scroll was preserved in yes. its entirety. Yes, and th th that is interesting that the Isaiah scroll was preserved in its entirety. And, and that's the, uh, the one in St. Mark's monastery that I compared in my translation of Isaiah. I have a number of footnotes referring to that that were helpful. In fact, some things were an improvement in the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah, were an improvement upon the Ben Asher Codex from 800 AD, which is the most accurate, even more accurate than the Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah. But there were some things in which that Dead Sea Scroll was more clear. And I've incorporated that in footnotes in, the, in my translation of Isaiah. And Joanne, you had a question. Oh, I was just curious. It's a little bit off from what you were saying. But the, the 144,000, when the servant comes, will they have already been prepared to, to join with him? <laughs> the question is, will the 144,000 already have been prepared before the servant comes? Yes, I'm sure that there'll be the, the elect of God at that point, already celestial category people. But like Richard said, they will still have to shut their mouths and listen to more and come up the learning curve a little bit when that servant comes along. So then they'll, but certainly he seems to want to be the one. In the book of Isaiah, he, he turns up and then they turn up. So he's the initiator. It's the same in the allegory of Zenos. The Lord commands him to go and gather other servants to help him do the grafting, right? So he's the, he's the one. He's the one that initiates the whole thing. And then maybe those servants that he, get, that he gathers to help him do the grafting will need a little bit more education before they finally. And, and through that ministry, they also ascend to the translate. They're not necessarily translated all at once. Likely during, during the course of their ministry, they're translated. When they prove valiant in that ministry, then at some point they're translated like uh, Spencer. Uh, and the reason why Spencer chose you know, that particular course that he took, because, uh, because of his dedication to a particular kind of work, but anyway, there's so much to talk about, but thank you so much for attending tonight. I love each of you, and hopefully we can, we have, what, we have three more sessions? Here, what was that? We have three more classes, oh, right? three more. Yeah. yeah. The next one is on Zion and Babylon. So, good night. This concludes Lecture 21, The Gentiles Go Two Ways. Be sure to visit IsaiahExplained.com as well as IsaiahInstitute.com to learn more about Isaiah with Dr. Avraham Giliadi.